We're going to dive into God's Word this morning and look at a, a foundational issue that the Bible covers that turns out to be one of the foundational issues to life. The dilemma between balancing justice and mercy. And just to give you a, a, a taste of how this issue creeps into all aspects of life, let's pull some headlines, some recent headlines here without getting political, but you have possibly a rogue foreign leader using chemical weapons to attack women and children. We cry out for justice. This is wrong. It is wrong. Well, what do we do about it? Who has the authority, who has the right, who has the power to bring justice? And so at times we see God working through the instrument of human government to bring justice. And yet one might say, well, who's America to bring justice to a dictator who possibly gassed his own children when we've killed over 30 million children through abortion? Where's the virtue, the virtuous standing to be able to sit in judgment over others and bring justice? And you would say, huh, good point. And yet, if nobody brought justice, we would live in a world of anarchy. And we can't have that. And so, some would then say, well, the President of the United States who ordered this missile attack is under investigation for misproprieties or improprieties. And others would say, yeah, and the people investigating them, who are they? Are these just men and women who are conducting the investigation? I'm sure you have your opinions. And it's, so it's complicated, is it not? And what it boils down to is we need justice in our world, but our world is filled with unjust men and women. We need justice, but our world is filled with unjust men and women. And this trickles all the way down to your own home. As parents, you're the arbiters of justice. And when your children are little... They tow the line because you're more powerful and you uh, pulled the purse strings. You've got the sticks and the carrots. But as they get older, they begin to get a more mature sense of justice and inequity. Hey, mom and dad aren't perfect. Who are they to sit in judgment over me? And yet they lack the maturity to realize that they're not at a place in their life to be the judge. And so this runs into the sometimes even funny circumstances. In our own culture, we'll say, well, children are too immature to be able to do this, this, or this and sit in judgment. But then you have other people saying, hey, let's give those kids the right to vote at age 16 now. There's, there's cries of lowering the voting age. So you're like, well, which is it? Are these people ready to, to judge or are they not ready to judge? 
And we see that, unfortunately, the answer to this question often has to do with what is convenient to me at the time. What is going to work out best for me? And so let's delve into this problem biblically. It is one of the great philosophical debates, the dilemma versus of justice versus mercy. It's amazing to me that many people think the Bible, are, uh, the Bible is irrelevant to the big issues of life. Yes, it's for religion. Yes, it's for worship. So keep your Bible in your church or read it at home. But I don't see why we would bring it into the political sphere or academia. What are you kidding? If the Bible's from God and God is the author of reality then we should assume and expect that the Bible would speak to the core issues of reality and life. And in fact, it does. Not only should we expect it to speak on these issues, but we should expect it to confront us in these issues, to change our thinking about these things, to mold and shape our attitudes concerning these things. And yet, as we often talk about in Genesis 3 in the fall, it was man and woman who were tempted to say, I don't want God's word to be relevant to my everyday life. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't die, Satan said. Your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You can figure it all out yourself, and you won't need God. You get to play God. And they fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and we've inherited that tendency. This is the essence of our sin nature. This is where the battle needs to be fought in our hearts. And so, not only does the Bible have amazing things to say about justice and mercy, Jesus, the greatest of all teachers, because he's wisdom incarnate, he's God in human flesh, speaks to these issues with absolute final authority. He's not just adding one more voice to the conversation. And yet Jesus also has this masterful way of teaching in such a way that he boils these profound truths down to these simple parables. And so people mistake the simplicity of the parable for being unsophisticated, and yet, as we delve into the parables, we realize, wow, this guy knew what he was talking about. But even be careful there. When you say, wow, you know what? Jesus really does know what he's talking about. It's an acknowledgement of the truth, not you sitting in judgment over Jesus going, I'll be the final determiner of whether or not Jesus knows what he's talking about. You say, well, I would never do that. No, that is what we do. That is our problem. We've got to get a grip on this. This is our problem. You've got to be suspicious of your own ideas. So we're going to look at this morning how to balance justice and mercy. In fact, at first blush, most people think the two can't coexist. Say, well, why do they say that? The definition, uh, the definition of justice 
is the process or outcome of using laws <clears throat> to punish or exonerate those accused of breaking the law. So, as you're using the law to determine if somebody is guilty or innocent, you are doing justice. And when the final verdict comes in, in as much as the verdict corresponds with the law, justice has been done. So we're on the same page with this word justice. Mercy then is either the total or partial remittance of a punishment to which a convict is subject. So somebody is guilty of the law, there is a punishment that goes with the breaking of that law. Mercy comes in and says, we are not going to exercise the punishment. Or we are going to reduce the sentence. We can also extend the word mercy even to the positive side of the coin and say that mercy can also be giving people the reward that was due according to the law without achieving it or earning it. So we talk about doing mercy ministry. I'm going to help the poor. Well, they didn't work for that. Well, there's a place for helping people even when they haven't worked for something. So it seems, though, to some that these concepts are mutually exclusive. That mercy cancels out justice. You, you can't have one without the other. But let me read to you today's parables, and you'll see our Lord juxtaposition or put side by side justice and mercy. If, if they were opposites, then the Lord couldn't tell us to cry out for both. And this is exactly what he does. Let me read last week's parable and this week's parable together. Luke 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying... Give me legal protection from my opponent. The word for legal protection in the Greek is the word justice. So you could say, give me justice from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God, right, who is righteous, bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will he find anyone who believes this? And he also told this parable. Right? Don't separate your parables when they are in the same context and it's obvious that they're attached. Make sure you read them together because the two of them will help interpret each other. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were righteous, the, 
The root word in the Greek for righteous is the same root in the word justice. So we, we could say it this way. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were just and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he he would touch them, he would bless them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. This is the word of our Lord. All of that section of Scripture goes together. It turns out that justice and mercy are not opposites. They're not opposites. The opposite of justice would be lawlessness, not mercy. Mercy is an attenuation of justice. It's it's a lessening. It's a um, diminishing, not the law, but the punishment of the law. Or the requirement of the law. Let me give you an analogy. There might be some people here who who own a gun. I'm not sure. Um, but on, on uh, these these guns, there's a safety mechanism. If if I said, "What is what is that thing you have there? That button?" and you said, "Well, it's a safety mechanism." Well, what does it do? Well, if there's no gun, it's just a button. You can't have a safety mechanism without a gun, and you can't have mercy without justice. The the safety stops the gun from doing what it's supposed to do when you pull the trigger. Mercy stops justice from doing what justice is supposed to do. So they're not opposites. In fact, one depends on the other. You can't have mercy unless you first have justice. So we start with the law, and God is the embodiment of the law. He gives the law. The law doesn't sit over God. God is the law. Whatever God does is right and just and good because he is right and just and good. God is not right and just and good because there's a law that says, oh look, here's this being, and so far, he has a perfect record. 
So we'll call this being right and just and good. But the day he makes a mistake, like with God there's no mistakes. He is the standard. There is no standard above God. He is the standard. Our world wants to live without God, a- atheism without God, but they want the law. There, there's no law without God. There's no concept of law without God. We can come up with human laws, but they're not laws. They're opinions. There has to be an unmovable, unshakable, fixed standard in order for us to make human laws. And in as much as we base our human laws in the law of God, we can call those laws just. And yet we run into this problem that the world is filled with sinful people. That includes me and you. So who gets to be judge? Who gets to be an authority? A society that has justice without mercy is impossible because everyone makes mistakes. There is none good, no, not one, the Bible says. There is no one that is perfectly just. There is no one qualified or able to judge perfectly. So even our judges need mercy. And in as much as they remember this, they are useful as judges. Now, the judge in the parable is, is pretty useless. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't care about his fellow man. He's in it for himself. He takes bribes. He abuses his position of authority to better his own situation. And the only way for this widow to get justice is use the last tool in her toolbox. She has no money to bribe him. She has no authority. She has no husband. She has no advocate. So she'll use a woman's persistence. I'm trying to make it sound virtuous. (laughs) And he finally relents. And so God, we saw last week in this parable, Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If an unjust judge will finally bring about justice for the wrong reasons, how much more will... Will a just judge, our God, bring justice to his children or his elect that he chose and saved? How much more will God bring justice? And he'll bring it quickly. And it just doesn't feel like quickly. Because we're on our own uh, time schedule. This is part of the problem of man trying to execute judgment on this earth. Is we're so self-centered that it's hard to remove ourselves from our judgments we're always thinking about how does this affect numero uno very hard not to be biased so many things go into the process of judging we try to make it as objective as we can but we're subjective people Maybe this person's story resonates with you and so you feel more merciful towards them. Or maybe an injustice was perpetrated against them in a similar way that one was against you. And you still have very strong emotions about what happened to you. 
So you should probably recuse yourself from judging in that situation. Very difficult, if not impossible, for human beings to judge purely objectively according to the law. And so there's no one qualified or able to judge perfectly. Look at the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so God appointed judges, and with each new judge, what does the book of Judges say? Either they judged righteously according to the law, or they did evil. And Israel would go through these cycles of, we had some good judges, and then we had some really bad ones. And then some good ones and some really bad ones. And each time the good ones were less good than the last batch of good ones, until you get to Samson, who you could hardly call a good judge, but is considered a good judge because at the end of the day, he finally did the right thing. That's setting the bar pretty low. And so God took Israel through that, those hundreds of years for them to learn the lesson that only God is the righteous judge. Only God is the righteous judge. And it's recorded in God's word for our example. Before you put too much stock in human judgment, think again. And before you put too much stock in your own human judgment, think again. Now, some people lean more towards justice and others more towards mercy. And we have this bad habit of mocking one another. If you lean more towards mercy, you're a bleeding heart liberal. And if you lean more towards justice, you're an uncaring legalist. But whenever we have a pendulum, that ought to tell us that it probably means both need to be happening. And to sit here and single one camp out or one camp out is wrong is foolish. Thinking... I've hit the pendulum just right in just the right spot. We do need mercy because a society without mercy, what about careless mistakes? What about immaturity? Man, I did a lot of things as a young man that I'm glad justice wasn't served. I heard an amen. (laughs) Or just ignorance. I didn't know. It's no excuse. But you need mercy because you recognize that presumptuous law-breaking is a lot different than ignorant law-breaking. I had a friend in seminary from Kansas who, to blow off some steam while in seminary, went out to the Los Angeles National Forest to go do some shooting. (laughs) He he had no idea that that was illegal. And they told him, when you cross state line, you must know the laws of the state that you're you're in. You ain't in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. (laughs) And it cost him dearly because he wanted to go 
be a missionary in Lebanon, and he put a team of four families together, and the other three families got their visa approved, and his was denied because of that mark on his record. And so we need mercy. But too much mercy hollows out justice. Right? Too much mercy. Really? Is there such a thing as too much mercy? Yeah, too much mercy and people flagrantly disobey the law. Or you see lots of people getting mercy over here and you're like, well, if they're not getting in trouble, then you're tempted to become a lawbreaker yourself. So it's certainly complicated. So, how much mercy should a society have? Like you can put a number on this. People try to put a number on it. Maybe some kind of complicated, you know, chart. Oh, if they break this law, but they're this age and they have no priors, you know, six months in prison, 40 hours community service. And maybe we'll reduce the sentence if you behave. And we try to do that. And in a church filled with law enforcement, I'm sure you have your stories of what too much mercy does in the life of a criminal. They don't learn their lesson. And yet we can also tell stories of what the lack of mercy does in the heart of a human being. And so the fear of God keeps me from violating God's law, but the kindness of the Lord also brings me to repentance. God is perfect at bringing just the right blend of punishment and mercy in my life. And I'd like to know how to do that better if I'm going to be an authority, whether over my own children or in my family, in society, in the church. Here's what people who've grappled with this topic have pointed out and what I want you to see makes this so difficult. Because of our fallenness, our residual fallenness, it's not to say we're not redeemed and we have, we have the Holy Spirit in us and he'll help us with this, amen? But we know we still have residual fallenness in us. And our residual fallenness will always demand justice when it's our rights that have been violated. I want justice! But when we're the perpetrators, we want mercy. Come on, it wasn't that bad, and, you know, I just kind of lost my temper, and it's not really my pattern of behavior, and we demand mercy. We, we assume it. But nobody's thinking of mercy when your rights have been violated. It's interesting to me that in our society, these social justice warriors who are running around playing judge, you guys are evil, you guys are evil, you guys are evil. Well, what about you? Well, we're not evil. 
You see, when we go around playing judge, somehow in our mind we convince ourselves that we're the righteous one. You're stepping on my rights. Well, now you're stepping on mine. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are, actually. So now who's, who's the perpetrator and who's the victim? So I'll say this much. This is a clue. Often those who are crying out for just personal justice the loudest are those who are less aware of their own in unjust heart. Often those who are crying out for personal justice loudest are those who are least understanding their own unworthiness, their own fallenness. So be careful in your life when you are crying out for justice and demanding swift punishment. Our self-righteousness blinds us to our unworthiness to judge. And yet judge we must. I know... The unbeliever's favorite verse in the Bible is, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Ask them where to find it in the Bible, and they can't. I mean, it's in there, but they, they pulled it out of context. And you realize that when they're saying that to you, what are they doing? They're judging you. So, we can't not judge. We have to be discerning. We have to fight against injustice. We need... We need a society based on laws, we need someone to execute justice and to decide. It's why people flock to our country. As warped as our system seems to us, it's much worse out there. The injustice, the bribery, the corruption. People flock to America for freedom and economic opportunity and they don't realize that those two things often are, are, uh, have to go together. Not often, they have to go together. If you're starting a business and someone could just walk in and take everything and not be punished, you can't have a free market. And so people flock to America for the freedom that our system of laws and justice brings. And yet, sadly, when things aren't going their way, they'll vote for a system that is more like the system they fled. Well, it's not fair. He's got more than I do. I'll vote for the guy who says he'll take some of his stuff and give it to me. That's the country you just came from. Yeah, but we're doing it legally here. Well... It starts out there, and then the corruption sets in. So we demand justice when it's, when it's uh, convenient for us, and we demand mercy when it's convenient for us. And we say, well, who is adequate to judge then? Who can be perfectly just and administer justice and mercy without partiality? Especially when it comes to eternal justice, and that's actually where we have to start. See, we're trying to figure out temporal justice, and God says, first, start with eternal justice. Who is able to just judge rightly? And the next parable after these is the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, time out. 
you use the word good, there's only one that is good. Are you calling me that one? Which he is, Jesus, is the one, the righteous one, the righteous judge. So if you're going to ask what must I do to inherit eternal life, then only the judge has the right to answer that question. So that's where we need to start our inquiry. So Jesus tells us to cry out for justice from the one who is perfectly just. In the parable, it's this unjust human judge. He doesn't say, go find a just human judge. He says, go right to the top. You want justice? Go to the source of justice. Cry out for justice. See, this is what our society now is lacking is you can't possibly set up enough law enforcement to keep sin in check. A society, a free society, needs a healthy understanding of there is a judge. I may have gotten away with it down here, but I'm not getting away with anything. It's not, it's lawful for me as long as there's no cops around. We stand before a higher authority and that keeps sin in check and keeps us crying out for mercy. In the absence of a healthy God awareness, justice gets boiled down to what I can get away with and what I can't get away with. So Jesus tells us to cry out to God so that we have a healthy view of where justice comes from ultimately. And though it seems like he's delaying a long time, God's not bound by the same clocks we are. He will make all things right in his timing. And that gives us great confidence even in the face of temporary injustice. It also keeps me from building up my own sense of personal worthiness and justice. If I'm constantly comparing myself to other people when it comes to justice, I'll tend towards picking out people that seem obviously less just than me. And that is what the Pharisee does in the story. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That word righteous means just. And viewed others with contempt. Notice the Pharisee judged himself by using obvious sinners as comparison. This is human, fallen human nature. We all do this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, who in this society was held up as the standard of virtue and godliness, and the tax collector could not be more polar opposite, the dreg of society, a turncoat, sell out his own people, steal their money to, to give to Rome. And so he's praying this Pharisee, although it doesn't really sound like a prayer, it sounds more like a public pro- proclamation. He's 
standing in a place of prominence, probably as near to the Holy of Holies as he can possibly get. He's got his big frontlet on, right from Deuteronomy 6, 9. God's law will be like frontlets on your head. They took that literally. They took a box and put scripture in it. And the holier you were, the bigger the box. And on their wrists, and these long tassels that indicated how righteous you were. This public display of self-righteousness in God's temple. The place God set up for man to make atonement for his sin. Not to parade around his self-righteousness. And this is the teacher of Israel. Something went horribly wrong. A little side note here as I was studying this week. Is it ever okay to thank God by comparing yourself to others? Could he have prayed this prayer in a way that is honest and godly? So we should never evaluate our own righteousness by comparing ourselves to others because we will be tempted to falsely elevate ourselves and despise others like the Pharisee. But does does the Bible tell us we should never compare ourselves to others? No, and so we let the Bible be our guide. We can use the example set by others to motivate us towards righteous behavior. Paul said to Timothy, imitate me in as much as I imitate Christ. We need godly examples in our life. You should find people who are more spiritually mature than yourself. It'll keep you humble and give you incentive and help to mature. Not incentive to say, boy, someday when I'm like so-and-so, then I'll really be somebody in the church. I find it helpful that you don't put people in the all or nothing category. We're all a bundle of virtue and vice. We're Romans 7 walking around. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. How could Paul be this mighty apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and then call himself the chief of sinners. Because it's true. They're both true. We have a perfect God, no perfect men and women. But the goal is perfection. Paul said in Colossians that his goal is to present every man complete or mature in Christ. That's what we're doing as a church. So that must mean that there are some who are more mature than others. But I have found it's more helpful to say, let's look at different categories of people's life. Hey, that person is just known as a prayer warrior. I want to grow in the area of prayer. I'm going to go to them. Instead of saying, that person over there is, if anyone was, was, Perfect like Jesus, they're as close as it gets. You don't know human nature then. And if you went to that person and said that to them, they would rebuke you if they really were godly. Oh, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You don't know what I struggle with. You have... Those fleeting moments in your life where you finally do something without thinking about yourself. 
and five seconds pass and you go, hey, look at that, I did a nice thing without thinking about myself. Ah, I blew it. Again, it, I yearn for heaven to see Jesus face to face, to be embraced by my Savior. I yearn for heaven to trade in this body for the 2018 model, right? Or the eternal model. But tops near my list is I won't have to deal with this anymore. This constantly checking my motives and checking my heart to just have pure motives, sinlessness. Oh. As Paul said, who will save me from this bondage? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think we can also thank God for his grace in our lives as we look at others. It will help generate compassion and mercy for those who struggle with things that in God's grace I didn't have to struggle with. In God's grace and mercy, he put me in a family with two parents who've been married for 50 years. That's huge, people. You know it's huge. I have a father. He's not a perfect example, but I know from years of counseling how difficult it is when you didn't have a father. It is an epidemic in our country. Fatherlessness. So before I pump myself up like the Pharisee and think, Thank you, God, I'm not like these other people. Maybe I ought to evaluate my life and see where God's hand of grace, even when I was still an enemy of him, was stacking the deck in my favor, so to speak, for his own purposes in glory. What do I have that wasn't first given to me for the purpose of glorifying God? And so it generates compassion and mercy for those who didn't have the opportunities that I had in life. So yes, I think there are healthy ways to compare ourselves to others. But be on guard every time you compare yourself to another person. Your pride will get in the way somehow. It will weasel its way in there. And start convincing you you are either a better person or more deserving of something. So whether you're puffed up with pride like the Pharisee or you're puffed up with a sense of entitlement... Like so much of our country right now. Well, that's not fair. Turning justice into egalitarianism or or perfect equity. Well, it's not fair they're taller or prettier or have a better singing voice or whatever. We've got to make this equal. We've got to fix this disparity. We've got to fix this inequality. Who can do that? God's designed the world in this way. And anytime you think you have the right to decide he has more than he does and I'm going to move this from here to here, you've now built up in your mind that you are so just and see things so clearly that you can undo what God has done purposefully. There is equality in our world. None of us are worthy. There you go. The foot of the cross is flat. It's not an amphitheater where 
the holier people get to be near the top. But we're all made in the image of God as human beings, and so we all have worth and value. All men are created equal. That doesn't mean we're all created with equal gifting. How boring would that world be? And yet, the human heart says, that, that is justice. That is fair. Everybody should have the same gifting. Everybody should have the same talent. Everybody should make exactly the same. Everybody should have the same comfort of living and standard of living. Well, how are we going to pull that off? Well, just give me some power, and I'll make it happen. Voila, fascism, totalitarianism. So be on guard. Notice the Pharisee also used a partial list of good works to judge himself. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He was obviously very good at those two things and probably a list of some other things. Legalists always use a list of good works to judge themselves as righteous. Of course, they li- the list is always comprised of the things they're good at doing. Furthermore, they aren't even as good at keeping the list as they think and are often guilty of hypocrisy. Okay, so, all right, I won't compare myself to other people, but I'll decide I'm a good person by keeping my little personal list of good people, according to Brent. Hey, look, it's all the things I do. Who would have thought? The Pharisee was just in his own eyes according to his own own standards. And once we do this, a number of disastrous thoughts and behaviors follow. Number one, we no longer think we need mercy. Not much to come to church and worship about if you don't think you need mercy. I mean, it's like every song we see is thanking God for his grace and his mercy. You become self-righteous and now you're like the Pharisee standing up in church saying, thank you God, I'm not like these other people who need your mercy. Number two, we judge others harshly now. What is wrong with these people? Get your act together. Number three, we think we have the right to be the final judge. I am just, therefore I have the right to judge. Number four, we won't listen to other ideas or take correction. There's no place for that if we're self-righteous. You should be asking me where you need to change. I'm the one who tells other people where they need to change. But as Craig mentioned, when we get on the other side of stupid, and that is on the other side of stupid, I mean that is way on the other side of stupid, You won't listen to anyone who comes. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. People don't tell me where I need to change. I'm the guy who tells other people where they need to change. And worst of all, we end up having no place for God or his grace in our life. You become a God unto yourself now. Aren't we supposed to become like Jesus? Yes, but not in that way. The tax collector had the proper attitude. Note the signs of humility. He's praying in an inconspicuous location. 
He's addressing God with fear and reverence. He won't, he won't even look up to heaven. He's emotionally distraught over his sins. He's, he's beating on his breast. And he's, he's not doing it for show. You know, Jesus indicates this is an authentic response of his own conviction. And there's no attempts at self-justification. He just comes right out and says, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, but on the scale of sliding scale of sinners, I'm really not that bad. He just, I'm, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Compared to you, I'm as guilty as the worst murderer, commandment breaker. Compared to God's holiness, his perfect justice. The man who seemed less just was declared just by the one who has the right to declare people just. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And you say, well, how is this possible? Certainly the tax collector is not just. The just one just declared him just. That's a lot of justs. But I think you're tracking. If, if Jesus is truly just, which of course he is. I'm not, I'm not judging Jesus and deciding he's just. He is just. But he just told somebody who's not just that you went home justified. It seems to violate the very definition of justice. If anyone was closer to being declared just, it should have been the the Pharisee if we're keeping score. So then, how do we cry out for justice when we're not just? Aren't we bringing down judgment on our heads if we call out for justice? If you truly know who you are as a sinner, crying out for justice is scary. How can unjust people cry out for justice and, ha- and, and trust people? Um, I'm sorry, that should say unjust. And unjust people admit that they need mercy and have confidence that God will declare them just. I'm admitting that I'm not just and hoping God will declare me just. How does that work? Trust in God's character and promises that the justifier has a way to declare us just without violating his law. Well, I I don't know how that's going to happen. This is, we know how it's going to happen. It's going to happen on the cross, but they didn't know how it was going to happen. And so he tells them, in this follow-up story that we think has nothing to do with these two parables and has everything to do with these parables, don't send the children away. you got to be like children to enter the kingdom. Children just trust their parents when they're little. But notice it's the word babies. Very young children who can't do anything for themselves and can't really determine right and wrong. They don't even know there's a right and wrong until they're told. We have to have that kind of faith because compared to God, we are like those children. Lord, have mercy on me because I don't really know what is just and unjust like you do. And I don't know how you're going to untangle this justice-mercy problem because I'm horrible at it. But I trust you can do this. And he has. The justice-mercy problem was 
settled on the cross. God's justice and mercy collided on the cross. The one who is just and doesn't deserve punishment got our punishment so that God could then attribute his righteousness to our account by faith. When you say, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared just, not because you are just, but because you've cried out for mercy and said, I need a justice, a righteousness that is alien to me, that's not my own. And God freely gives it to you in Christ. Free for you, not free for Christ. He gave everything. He paid the price. The bloody cross becomes so beautiful to us because it solves the justice mercy problem. How can God be just and merciful? Look at the cross. Perfect justice, abundant mercy. Paul references this in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse. We memorize it in Awana. But keep reading. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Well, how does it demonstrate your righteousness to punish someone who didn't deserve to be punished? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed by humanity. If, if God just said, well, you know what, I'll just pretend you guys didn't sin. There's no justice. But if we got what we deserved, we would get no God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And so on the cross, Jesus was separated from his father. So we wouldn't have to be. Therefore, see, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to be just and merciful. Here's the point of the sermon. You can't even start trying to figure this out until your heart's in the right place. And your heart gets in the right place by realizing, I am not justified by my own merits. I need God's mercy. And by God's grace then, I can now declare and uphold justice while being ready to extend mercy. And finally, Micah 6, 8 makes sense to me. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? I always thought, how do do I do both of those at the same time? Oh, by walking humbly with my God. Crying out for justice and mercy simultaneously sets my heart in the right place to execute justice and extend mercy in my world. And that takes humility that only God is just. And without him, I would never be just. Thank you, Father, for your justice that there is a standard of good That never changes. Forgive me, O Father, for making myself the standard of justice. Humble me in Christ. So that I can see myself rightly 
and give you all the thanks and praise that you deserve. And so that I can execute justice in whatever sphere of influence you've given me in this world. And be ready to extend mercy because I need mercy. And we'll walk by faith until Jesus comes and perfect justice arrives. And then we won't have to be stand-ins anymore. Oh, we long for that day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.